0: long as I can remember I've been fascinated with disasters what happened why it happened and what we can learn from them as an anxious person learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety as an empath I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters who survived who didn't and most importantly how they lived I'm Jenny the disaster queen and I hate that disasters happen but since they're gonna I want to learn from them Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Disaster Queen Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again. I love it that you keep coming back for more terrible, terrible, wonderful, interesting stories. I am Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen, and today I have again for you a special guest one might call her very special. I would say she's probably the first friend I ever had in my whole life. And she's also my cousin, Emily Barry. Welcome, Emily.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be
0: here. I am so excited that you are here. Of course, obviously. So Emily's my cousin. We met when she was born. Um, very rudely, she is younger than I am by not quite two years and I think God put her on this earth to keep me humble, to be honest, but...
1: <laughs> I'm doing my best. She's doing
0: a great job. So I guess we should apologize in advance for the tomfoolery that this episode might be. <laughs> but we hope you guys enjoy it. In our former lives, Emily and I had a blog together called and It Up. You can still find it out there, mominitup.com. Because we had our first kids at the same time, and we shared our parenting experiences with the internet and much to our children's now chagrin now that they're young adults (laughs) oops we didn't really think about that at the time the internet was
1: new yeah
0: who knew it would last forever and have serious consequences (laughs) um but we were like mediocre successful mom bloggers and we've always
1: just been (laughs) it's true it is true (laughs) solid (laughs) c-list
0: And we had a lot of fun. And no, maybe one day we'll start a grandma blog. I mean, <laughs> that could be a thing, right? But Emily's an actual professional with an actual real job. I don't know if you want to out your workplace or not, but, or do you want to remain sure. private? You go. No, that's fine. you. Tell the people I, what you do.
1: I am the assistant vice president for development at Miami University.
0: Go Red Hawks.
1: That's right.
0: So she's kindly taken her lunch break to talk about a terrible, terrible story with us, a disaster that I had never heard of. And she actually brought it to me. So, Emily, why don't you tell them what our disaster is and how you came upon it?
1: Sure. So in similar fashion to many of our conversations, Jenny, you and I were having an odd conversation in which you asked me what my favorite disaster was, and (laughs) uh, I didn't even think that was a weird question. So I don't know why, but this particular disaster popped to mind, and I truly don't even know a lot about it. Um, But a number of years ago, probably seven or eight years at this point, I had the opportunity to go way up on the northern or the Upper Peninsula in northern Michigan. Um, It's just about as far north as you can get in Copper Country and was touring a number of their landmarks and viewing some of the beautiful scenery up there and came across um, this tragedy. And (laughs) when you ask me about my favorite disaster, that's, that's just what came to mind. But I honestly don't remember much about it other than that something just really bad happened.
0: Okay, so to be clear for the listener, Emily brought me this disaster story, but she doesn't know a ton about it. And I had never heard about it at all. So I went and learned about it. And Even though she's the one who came up with the idea, I'm still going to be kind of filling her in. So, shall we bring the people in on this misery? (laughs)
1: Let's do it.
0: Okay. (laughs) So, what we're talking about today is the Italian Hall disaster, which took place on Christmas Eve 1913 in present-day Calumet, Michigan. At the time, it was called Red Jacket, Michigan. So, we're going to try and refer to it as Red Jacket. But if you're looking for it today, it's on the map as Calumet. So, like I said, Christmas Eve, 1913. But Emily mentioned it was copper country. So let's talk about some basic facts and kind of set the scene for you guys. So as she said, Red Jacket was way up, way up yonder. It's not only on the upper peninsula of Michigan. It's like on another peninsula, which is called the Keweenaw Peninsula. Keweenaw Peninsula. I like that Native American name. And it is now quite small with less than a 1,000 residents. At the time it had about 5,000 and it basically existed because of copper mining. So we're like in a time machine now, Emily, because episode seven, which has not been published yet, <laughs> but the people will hear it before they hear this, was about another mining disaster in Abervan, Wales. And this this isn't actually a mining disaster and neither was that, they're both mining adjacent. Hmm. So there are some similarities here, but Abervan Wales also existed solely because of the coal mines. So Red Jacket existed basically because of the copper mines. And the Keweenaw Peninsula is right up on Lake Superior. And I am very bad at geography. I don't know if you know this about me, cousin, but I am. So I, I was looking at some maps and then that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of some Lake Superior facts. So do you, do you nice. know any off the top of your head you want to lay on us?
1: Um, well, I will say that this is why we always avoid the blue questions when we're playing Trivial Pursuit, because we true. are not great at geography. Um, I don't really know any Lake Superior facts, except for I think that it is hmm, the size of an ocean, or it's not even actually a lake because it's so big.
0: That is true. I can't remember. I don't have on my sheet what they actually call it, but it's actually not a lake and yet it is the biggest of the great lakes it it is so big that it contains 10% of the planet's fresh surface water whoa i know i had no idea and it is it contains as much water as all the other great lakes combined plus three extra lake eries that's crazy i just sort of assumed all the great lakes were around the same th- size you know what i mean like that's sure. how ignorant yeah. i am yeah so yeah I did not know that. And then lastly, I won't give you, there's like a million facts, but I'm just, this is my favorite one. There is enough water in Lake Superior to cover all of North and South America with water one feet, one foot deep. All of North and South America. That
1: doesn't even compute it in my doesn't. brain.
0: My mind won't make sense of it, but that's a big old lake. That's not really a lake. Is it a mini ocean? I can't remember the term they used for it. But yeah, I can't remember either. It's ginormous, basically, is what we're saying. So- that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the scene we're setting for you. This tiny mining town right up on the Keweenaw Peninsula, practically in Lake Superior, called Red Jacket. So it existed because of copper mines. And the town was basically run by the mining company, which was the Boston-based Calumet and Hecla Mining Company. And between 1871 and 1880 their copper mines produced half of the US copper. So they were big business. And even in 1913, though it had slowed down, it was still a bit pretty big industry and it kept that part of Michigan going. So the company Calumet & Hecla was actually known for treating their employees very well, which I like, uh, better than most miners. So another similarity we're going to see between the, the Abervan Whale story, and this is that uh, you know, a lot of the miners and their families weren't treated real well because they basically lived in poverty and they were the working class. Mm-hmm. So, America's never really been great with that. I gotta say, 110 years later, we could still be doing a lot better. <laughs> also, most of these people were immigrants. So, there were actually like a lot of Finnish people and Nordic peoples um, working in the mines. But nevertheless, they were known as one of the better mining companies to work for. They ran an employee aid program for ill or hurt employees, and they matched employee contributions. So you could pay into that, and the mining company would match it, which was completely unheard of at that time. Hmm. And by 1908, they had provided a hospital and doctors for their employees in the town, a library with books in multiple languages because they did have such a huge immigrant population working for them, And the company used its capital to help fund the buildings of schools and churches in their mining communities. So it was great. They did a lot of great things for their employees. It also meant they had a lot of control over different areas of their employees' lives. So there wasn't a lot of balance as far as the company's involvement in your life if you were living in Red Jacket and working for Calumet and Hecla. Yeah, can go both ways, good and bad. So this great treatment from them was enough to avoid their miners striking for a very long time. But finally, uh, in 1913, they did have a general strike that was called in July. And so our story takes place during a general strike when miners who already were kind of at the bottom of the economic rung uh, were going through even tougher times because they weren't getting paid. So our story takes place on Christmas Eve. Their strike started in July. So they'd been out of work for five months. and. The strike called for a $3 a day wage and an eight-hour workday, among other things. Their union was called the Western Federation of Miners, and they were pretty tough because they were up at Christmas and they were still striking. So this brings us up to the day of our disaster. Do you have anything to add, Emily?
1: Well, I am just, again, trying to set the stage here I my guess is that it was probably very cold and snowy and miserable in addition to being Christmas
0: can you imagine like you're up in way up north you're practically in Canada I mean I think you're higher than parts of Canada right Mm -hmm, for sure and it's cold you haven't had any wages for five months the women of course don't work And mothers are trying to feed their children. So everyone was looking for a little bit of holiday cheer. And this is where Annie Clements comes in. Annie was the leader of the Western Federation of Miners Women's Auxiliary Group. And she was a very unique woman because she was a union activist. And she was very pro miners' families. She was also six foot two inches tall. Wow. I know. I'm a shorty. I'm five foot four. I can't imagine being that tall. I think it would be absolutely wonderful. But in 1913, it was probably even much more rare than it is now. Unfortunately, this led to her being called by the townspeople Big Annie or Tall (laughs) (laughs) Annie. I do not. I do not ever want to be known as Big Jenny. Can we just (laughs) put that out there right now? Actually, funny story. Here, let's go on one of our tangents. Of course. So Emily is my first cousin on my mother's side. So she's not related to anyone I'm going to talk about now. But my brother's wife has a niece named Emily, and then her brother married an Emily. So basically, my brother's wife has two nieces named Emily. They're sisters-in-law. One of them is, they're both beautiful. One of them is very tall, and one of them is average-sized. And their nieces and nephews call them Mimi, but they call the tall Emily Big Mimi. (laughs) Poor Emily. Big Mimi. And she's such a beautiful, beautiful girl. I'm sure Annie Clements was quite lovely as well. That's my tangent. I don't want to be known as Big Jenny. So, can
1: I add to your tangent? Please. A friend of mine has uh, many children, and their children have two moms. And so, <laughs> my friend is referred to as Big Tall Mommy. Both that's of right. them together.
0: <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. So is 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 her wife just Mommy, or is she short She's Mommy? Short Mommy. Okay. But... <laughs> well, at least they're keeping it equal there. <laughs> Oh,
1: my gosh.
0: That's amazing. So 110 years later, we're still rocking it. Annie, you can have some solidarity in your grave. (laughs) Okay. So Annie was quite the character, and she was known for her fierce support of the Union. And she frequently led marches in support of the Union. And she wore a plain gingham dress and carried a huge American flag on a 10-foot pole as she marched down Red Jacket Streets in support of the Union. So I imagine she was quite a sight. And she even also served a ten-day sentence in jail for assaulting a non-striking minor.
1: Dang,
0: Annie was a bad bee. <laughs> um, but tonight Annie was throwing a Christmas party for the minor's children.
1: That was very nice of her. It was super nice of her.
0: It was really important to her that the kids have at least one present. So, Aww. imagine you and your you, imagine your mother, Emily. I know that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, our kids—we're both like you know have grown up white middle class, we've never known hunger, we've never not been able to provide presents or food for our kids. So imagine, I think if I was a mom in this situation, I'd be like super excited for my kids to get a present. For For sure. sure. So they had this big party planned for the miners' families at the Italian Benevolent Society Building, which everyone referred to as the Italian Hall. So the official name of our disaster, I guess, is the Italian Hall Disaster or the Michigan Italian Hall Disaster. Some people even, well, I'll save this for later. <clears throat> um, hold that thought. We'll come back to it. So the hall was a large two-story building you can easily Google and see photos of. And it had businesses on the bottom floor. And then the top was just kind of like a big open area for gatherings on the second floor. But it only had one staircase leading to the street. So if you were upstairs, there was only one way in and one way out. Um, It was a big, raucous affair with over 600 people in attendance, and the children were given gifts, and they watched a Christmas play, and I'm sure there were probably holiday treats and other refreshments. Now, in our day of age, whenever we go to a big, like, concert, um, here where we live, they have a big, beautiful concert hall called the Schuster Center. What do they always say at the beginning? where the exits are located in case of an emergency please find Mm -hmm. the exit nearest you and side note we have discussed the exits in that place haven't we before we have Mm. but they didn't do that tonight at the italian hall i don't think they did that in 1913 at all probably much and in the midst of all this celebrating someone to this day it remains a mystery who yelled out fire and in that Mm -hmm. day you know Most of the structures were wooden. Fire was even more dangerous than it is today. And immediate panic ensued. And the hundreds of people on the upper floors of the Italian Hall raced for the one and only staircase that led outside and led to safety. And this is where the disaster happened and all the trigger warnings. But if you're, like, easily triggered, why are you listening to this podcast? (laughs) I would advise you to find a different favorite. (laughs) We don't get graphic here. That's not what we do, but it is literally called Disaster Queen. So bad things are going to happen. Um, okay, so here's what happened. The stampede on the single narrow staircase proved almost immediately deadly as everyone tried to rush out of the building. Soon there was a huge pileup. It was very steep. Somebody fell like pretty much right away and dozens of people piled on top of them and were trampled or suffocated to death and in awe. Do you know how many people died, Emily? Do you remember?
1: No, I'm afraid to ask.
0: 73 people died. 59 of whom were children. Oh my
1: gosh. Yeah. So people were literally like walking over children. Yes.
0: I mean, 73 people, which is more than 10% of the people at the party, 59, which is almost an exact 10% of people who were at the party were children. It It was 59 children, five men, and nine women. So this is the largest mining-related debt disaster to occur in Michigan. Which again, it's very similar to Aberfan in Wales. I mean, what happened is not similar at all, but the fact that it was mostly children, it was mostly mining families, and it was mining adjacent. That is all very similar. So it was just a terrible, awful, unimaginable disaster and with a town of only five thousand, mm-hmm. i mean that's a very big loss it's a very big loss anyway but
1: <clears throat> i'm trying to imagine like the the logistics of one staircase and 70 79 is that right 73? 73 people total 73 yeah. people like piled up essentially like
0: they they said they were like up to the ceiling and this is the worst part, which I didn't even say. There was never any fire. <sighs> there was nothing to escape from. Someone oh yelled gosh. fire and caused a panic and killed 73 people. There was no fire.
1: And so, that person just lived with that knowledge for the rest of their lives. Because you said it's a mystery, right? It is a
0: mystery. No oh, one I mean, person... I guess
1: unless that person died.
0: Yeah, I suppose they could have. We will get into the investigation, which is not uh, investigations. Just I don't think we're great in 1913. <laughs> <But> <laughs> we'll talk about it. Um, but yeah, so they still to this day don't know who yelled fire. Um, the other thing that's sad about it is there were two fire escapes in the in the building that no one used or tried to use and again that's because back in that time and disasters like this and the triangle shirtwaist factory fire changed this you know there were no safety plans announced mm-hmm. before events there were no exit plans it just wasn't a thing and so people didn't know that those fire escapes were there and they didn't try to use them so this is like it's a tra- it's tragic all by itself but then when you add in the fact that there was no fire and there were other means to get out of the building that no one even tried to use it just makes it even worse so thank you Emily for bringing this to our attention today
1: listen you're welcome I truly did not remember that there was not a fire because I think if I remember correctly when you and I talked about it originally I was like I don't know there was some fire and a bunch of kids died
0: yeah That's basically what you told me. And you told me Italian Hall is Michigan Italian Hall. And so that was enough for me to Google it and find it. Mm -hmm. So it makes it really even more terrible that it was all completely senseless. So and that's why some people call it a mass murder, which was the thought that I was holding before. And we'll get into that, too. But first, let's talk about the immediate aftermath. So it was obviously horrifying. Um, Like I said, bodies were stacked up high. They were. Pulled out because people were trying to rescue, pulled out of the stairway, um, but most of them were dead, and then they were taken all to the local town hall that was made into a makeshift morgue. Many parents lost more than one child. And a couple, and then, you know, the men and women who died, 14 total adults, were also parents of children who were there, so some lost a parent and a sibling. Mm. And if you go and read, I'll put in the show notes where you can read all the names, they're, most of them are very, you know, obviously not um, English original names. So mm-hmm. a lot of Scandinavian names just and a lot of names of multiple names from one family. It's just it is terrible. It It disproportionately affected children and it disproportionately affected families more than just like your mm-hmm. random disaster. So because Red Jacket was so small, they didn't have available coffins. I mean, who has seven to three coffins at the ready in a town of 5,000 nobody so they had to rush coffins from different cities around the country and they had a mass funeral procession on december 28th
1: oh my gosh yeah
0: the procession led to the lakeview cemetery where miners had dug a long trench style graves and they just buried them all basically together which is also very similar to Abervan Wales, where they buried 81 of the victims together. So, And then this is aw- odd to me as can be, but again, it was a different time. The funerals drew approximately 20,000 spectators to Red Jacket.
1: Oh, yeah. that is weird.
0: That is morbid. That is, I would not do that. I mean, I don't, no, I don't really do crowds anyway, but there's no, no.
1: I mean, you'll have a podcast in which you talk about disasters, <laughs> but you're not like a disaster tourist.
0: No, I'm not. Not into that. And I think it just shows you that there wasn't much to do back then. Like, I don't know if they were coming to support the community. Maybe it was other miners from across the country. Mm-hmm. Maybe it doesn't. No my source material didn't really get specific. So I guess if it's like other miners and stuff coming, that makes it seem less creepy, but. I thought it was very odd. That's a huge population to uh, overwhelm such a small town. Um, All the funerals and the funeral procession had a very strong pro-union presence and feel and support of the bereaved striking miners family, which takes us kind of into the investigation. Who yelled fire? Mm. The rumors were that it was an anti-union rep trying to spoil the miners party.
1: Oh, no. Yeah.
0: The anti-union group was called the Citizens Alliance, and eight witnesses at the party testified to the U.S. congressional investigation that the man who yelled fire had on a Citizens Alliance button. But they never could identify who that person was. The coroner's investigation, which was like super not great, did not determine a cause of the tragedy and the Congressional Education... Education investigation didn't either, although they did have those eight people swearing under oath that it was a Citizens Alliance guy. Um, They just kind of came to like a conclusion like, oh, we're not really sure. So no one was charged. It's still somewhat of a mystery. But Mm -hmm. the miners and their families and the union largely just went with that it was a Citizens Alliance person. And, you know, it may have been. There was a ton of tension in the town over this. But we don't know. However, after the tragedy, the Citizens Alliance were like, we're, we didn't do it. We're sorry. And they raised $25,000 for the Miner's family, which was a butt ton of money back then.
1: Wow. Did uh, they the... end the strike?
0: Get there, Emily. Call oh, sorry, sorry. Gosh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, we will get there. Dang uh, you for asking good questions. Um, I do want to let you talk. So thank you. Thank you for asking. Um. Okay, so they raised 25k for the miners' families, but the miners' families refused to take it from the Citizens Alliance. Oh, dang. Yeah, it's like that's some bad blood right there. Wow. So some say they were forbidden to take it by the union president. His name was Charles Moyer Moyer, and he was the Western Federation of Miners president. But persistent rumors to this day stated that state that the disaster occurred. Because the doors of the Italian hall opened the wrong way. They opened inward. But that has been proven over and over and over and over and over again to be untrue. They did not. They opened outward just like normal, normal doors. So um, that wasn't it. It was the person who yelled fire. We just don't know who it was. But back to the tension between the Citizens Alliance and the miners group. So Charles Moyer, the president of the union, refused to accept any help or let the miners accept help from the Citizens Alliance. So members of the Citizens Alliance got mad about this and they went to his hotel and shot him and kidnapped oh, him. Oh, okay. <laughs> this wow. is like super gangsta stuff. So yeah. they, they shot him t- enough to disable him and not kill him. They kidnapped him and they put him on a train and told him to leave Michigan and never return. yeah so he got to chicago and got medical treatment for his gunshot wound and he had a big press conference where he showed it off and denounced the citizens alliance and vowed to return to michigan to continue his union work and he did do that and the strike finally ended in april of 1914 so it was not quite a year it was nine months long strike ended four months after the tragedy and I got to say, the Citizens Alliance, if you're trying to prove yourself innocent of this, you know, mass murder of 73 people, kidnapping the union president and shooting him, is, <laughs> it's not a good look. No. Uh-uh. It, it does not do a lot to make him look good. Now, unfortunately, I could not find anything about any of the victims. And I guess that really comes from two, you know, two things. That's 110 years ago. Yeah. And also... Uh, mostly immigrants mm. i i heard in the source material that uh, there was a lot of reports in like finnish newspapers of the time mm-hmm. like i don't i don't read finnish i'm not oh. gonna i know Weird. It's surprising I'm gonna dig into those archives and try to learn a new language but i think <laughs> that the you know the information probably is out there but not mm-hmm. really in an accessible way to me even with the internet i'm not going to try drive up to calumet and dig into some archives until someone starts paying me the big bucks to do this podcast. So just note, and just going to put that out there. I can be bought, but
1: at which point you will become a disaster tourist.
0: I will. And I'll take you with me. Great. We can do a road tour. It'll be great. Um, okay. So the strike ended in April, 1914, but there's still some current controversies over this because they never found out who did it. So there is a book about it called death's door. The truth. Behind Michigan's Largest Mass Murder. And it's by Steve Leto. I could not get a copy of it from... It's not in any of my local libraries. I didn't want to pay 30 bucks Amazon. I'm sorry. But I would love to read it one day. Um, Steve, But Steve Leto has a great... Like, a lot of information on YouTube and Facebook about this. So I used huh. his resources that he's got out there. <clears throat> so Steve Leto, the guy who wrote the book Death's Door, is very obviously convinced that someone who was anti-union yelled fire. And that was it was an intentional disruption of the party that ended in manslaughter. At the very least, he says it's mass murder. He even goes so far in a recently updated version of his book to name the person he thinks did it. Wow. Yeah. And his Facebook page, um, which I'll link in the show notes, is very useful for information. It's where I could you can read every single name of the victims and see that in many cases, a parent and child or children died together and that several children from the same family died together in this awful, awful incident. And he's a, he's a great resource. And he's also been instrumental in getting the memorial, which I imagine you saw Emily. Did you yes, see the memorial? Okay. I did. <clears throat> so there's a memorial at the site. It has the archway, original archway from the Italian hall. The Italian hall was demolished in 1984, but they have the original archway there. And has 73 luminaries that they light on Christmas Eve to remember the lives lost. And it's got, you know, all kinds of signage and stuff. But Leto was very vocal and instrumental of of getting some signs changed at the Memorial Park. Because they said, first of all, that the doors opened inward, which was wrong. So he got that changed. (laughs) That was very easy to prove wrong. So it's crazy to me that that was on a sign. And the second thing that said was the signs uh, described the incident. As the party being disrupted. That's all it said. The party was oh, disrupted. Wow. So it true. really It's true, but it's pretty whitewashed. If you yeah. can use that term for this sort of thing. So he got it changed so that it would say more accurately that someone called fire falsely resulting in a panic. So he was pretty mad about that. I think justifiably so because it was a prettying up of the history and the story. And I don't know if the Park Service just wanted to tell a prettier story or what but um he blames a refusal even after over 100 years to blame anyone involved with the anti-union activities so who knows 110 years later people are still disagreeing about this
1: interesting i wonder i would imagine that descendants of the survivors or the the victim's families still live there
0: I would too, but the population has shrunk a lot. So it makes you wonder like if it was me, it, you know, you'd maybe want to run away, go back to your home country, but economically mm-hmm. that just wasn't possible for a lot of these people. Sure. Most of them, I would say. Um and I also wonder, you know, the, the reason we don't know much about them is because they were just yeah, poor people.
1: Well, and I mean that's that's why they were there and they were in the mines, right? They were disposable.
0: Right? They were doing the jobs that Yankees didn't want to do, basically. So, yeah, I really hate that a lot. But this mm-hmm. this story is not going to be the first or the last one that we tell on Disaster Queen that has that element of real classism when it comes right. to reverencing the lives of the victims. So we hold them as valued and we want to remember them the best that we can. Their lives mattered and That's why we're talking about this stuff. So that is kind of what we got. I want to talk about how it changed things. But first, I just have to make a note that Woody Guthrie wrote a song about this incident. Did you know that? Because you're smiling.
1: I well, I'm smiling because I just um, Googled this on my other screen here. And I I saw that. But no, I did not know that. And I, I am really interested to listen to it.
0: So it's called the 1913 massacre and it alleged that the disaster was the anti-union people's fault, but it also had some some dramatic license we will say in it if you guys listen to it. <laughs> um, for example, it depicted the anti-union reps holding the hall door closed and that did not happen. So no one was trying because there was no fire. I mean, I guess you know
1: I mean that that's pretty woody Guthrie like, right? Is it? To, yeah yeah.
0: all right, so. Let's talk about what we learned. I feel like we should play the Veggie Tales song when I say that. <laughs> what have we learned today? So, I don't think anything really directly came from this specific incident. But, unfortunately, there were many fires at the time and incidents like this. I mean, this was front page news. But, like, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was two years before this. Mm-hmm. And that's one most people point to when they think about changing um, having a safety plan, an evacuation plan, having different exits, having occupancy notices mm-hmm. like <clears throat> no more than 25 people in this stairwell at a time. Um, yeah. you know who knows if that would have really helped that night but I think it would have I think knowing the fire escapes were there certainly mm-hmm. would have and so just based you know on the disasters of this sort that happened in the early 1900s we definitely have, much more crowd and gathering place related safety kind of Mm -hmm. rules and signs and things to help us out than we did before so that is one kind of legacy of this but it is Mm -hmm. it's a sad one thanks emily
1: yeah well you're welcome
0: i guess (laughs) this is what we bring the people this is why it's called disaster queen so i never would have known about these people and so i do thank you and i would love to go get up go up there sometime and and see it
1: but yeah
0: I, guess-
1: I wanted to mention and i'm sorry that i didn't do this at the beginning but just reiterate how remote this location is and um you know we talked about how it is on a peninsula of the peninsula um but when i went there and this was probably in like 2000 2000- 16 or 17 so not very long ago but um i had to fly to chicago and then from there take a small plane to this tiny airport like i joked that it was like the show wings like that was the kind of airport that it was um one um terminal if you could even call it that like it was just a room um there was very little cell phone service in the whole peninsula um and so you know like these people even now travel on snowmobiles it's just a very remote location i can't imagine twenty thousand people going there for a funeral what the how difficult it must have been to be without income for all of those months uh, leading up to it and the um, effort it must have taken Big Annie to get the Christmas presents and things like that. I think that the the location itself really adds to um, the complication and, and the tragedy of it in some way.
0: That's really helpful. I hadn't thought about that and it also makes me wonder how how long of a train ride that poor guy had to take to chicago with his gunshot wound <laughs> for sure well that is the michigan italian hall disaster of 1913 so tell your friends we need to we need to remember these people and remember their lives I'm, I read every single name on that list. So I hope you guys will go ahead and click over to Steve Lato's Facebook page that I have linked in the show notes and just read their beautiful names. That's about um, all we can do and tell people what happened to them. So Emily, thank you for joining me because thank you for having me and thank you for bringing us this story because as awful as it is, it definitely needed to be told. Do you want to tell the people where to find you or do you just want to be as anonymous as possible?
1: Sure. So you can find me on the socials still as at momin' it up.
0: Cause we are still momin' it up, even though our kids are old.
1: That's right. And even though we are no longer C list bloggers.
0: <laughs> I really, really miss getting random free crap mailed to me. Me
1: too. Those were the basis. days.
0: Those were the days. Hey, but that free washer and dryer I got in 2010 are still going strong, baby.
1: That's right. It, but, I sold the house where we had the free appliances, and so they are no longer there.
0: That was a bad move. You need to kind of come up with another second career to get yourself another oven. So why don't you get working on that? (laughs) All right. I hope you'll join me again someday. We need to get your sister on here so we can have the full Super Cousins package. I'm sure she has a great disaster in
1: store for me, too. I'm sure she does.
0: But it's going to be hard to top this one. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please don't forget to rate and review the show and subscribe and tell your friends and follow me at Disaster Queen Pod on all the socials as well. As well, if you have a story idea that's as wonderful and terrible as Emily's, please email it to me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark, and disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com got an episode suggestion, email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.